pew Bible, the blue Bible there, uh, turn to page 856. We'll be reading verses 57 to 66 in our second week of Advent. Last week we looked at the birth of John uh, foretold. Uh, in many ways, sort of a, a miniature of what's, what's awaiting us. Here's a promise given to some people. And then this morning we'll see the fulfillment of that promise and the birth of John. And then next week we'll look at uh, the birth of Jesus foretold, followed by the birth of Jesus uh, for our last day of Advent. But let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, found in the book of Luke, chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. <clears throat> now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this morning for a miracle. And by a miracle that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us your grace, uh, that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you do this for your pleasure. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Many of you are probably somewhat familiar with the iconic running with the bowls in Pamplona, Spain, that goes on throughout the week, first week of June in the San Fernando Festival. Well, if you were actually going to run that this next July, and you happen to find yourself in the streets there of Pamplona in the raceway, you'd be listening for two very important sounds uh, at eight in the morning. The first is rocket number one, and the second is rocket number two. And rocket number one signifies to those runners who are crazy and perhaps maybe, well, you, you fill in the blank, um, to get in those streets. Rocket number one signifies to them and to the, uh, to the lookers, the watchers, that the gate is opened and the bulls are now able to get out of the gate. That is rocket number one. But rocket number two, perhaps maybe more important, signifies that the last bull has left. And so whether you're in, that, in those streets or you're watching, in a matter of seconds for some, a bunch of angry, oversized animals with horns are coming at you, whether you like it or not. In other words, what the rockets tell you is that something has started, but it ain't here yet, but get ready. Something has started, it ain't here yet, but get ready. And in many ways, this is the same for us, for the church, in these four weeks, as we lead up to, or these four weeks of Advent, leading up to Christmas. Something has started, but it ain't here yet, but get ready. 
We as Westerners have, have announced this in other ways. We put lights on houses. We decorate trees. We even uh, hand over entire radio stations to play Christmas music 24-7. Some of you wish that would stop, but that's for another discussion. All of that, though, is an announcement that something has started. But it ain't here yet. But get ready. Well, as we continue with our look at Luke's account of the birth of Christ, we look this morning at the birth of John that tells us the same thing, that something has started. Specifically, God has acted. God is doing something. And we see this uh, excitement and this wonder uh, so much on the pages of Luke, especially as we look at the birth of John in this very story. And I want us to enter into this excitement and wonder as well as we see God acting yet again on behalf of his promises, his people, and his plan. And those are the three things we're going to look at if you're taking notes. God acts on behalf of his people, excuse me, on behalf of his promises, on behalf of his people, and on behalf of his plan or purposes, if you want to use that one. So let's look at this first one. God acts on behalf of his promises. We need to remember the big picture here as we start, uh, and, and certainly Luke has this in mind, but as we continue to move through the Advent series here, many might ask the question, why in the world would we bother with John in the first place? I mean, why, don't, why not just get to Jesus, what this whole show is about, and, and do away with John? Well, the reason Luke doesn't do that, and in many ways is the same reason we're not doing that, is because the story that Luke is telling doesn't begin in chapter 1 of Luke. The story that Luke is telling is a much older story, a story that begins in Genesis and runs several thousand years to the very day when the promised Messiah would come in this line of, Zay, in this, in this line of David. This is actually something that Zechariah will sing about in the next verses after John's birth. And part of that bigger story, if you will, speaks of a man who will come before, quote, the great and awesome day of the Lord, which is Malachi, verses, chapter 4, verse 5. And that person is John. In other words, what the birth of John, this forerunner to the Lord, is telling us, what Luke is telling us, is that something has in fact started. God is up to something, that he is at work, that he is acting So get ready. Much of the narrative for Luke at this point is dominated by John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we recall from last week that Zechariah, due to his somewhat skepticism and doubt over the message of Gabriel about Elizabeth having a baby, was then caused to be mute. He couldn't speak until the birth of John and the name was given to him. You could call this a silent period for Zechariah, if you will. For nine months, he couldn't say anything, and perhaps he couldn't even motion. He needs something to ride on. He was left to himself, essentially, to think and to pray and to reflect what God was doing. You could even say that this was a mercy to Zechariah, to force him to think about God's promises. But of all the things that Zechariah thought about doing during his time of silence, you have to imagine That the meaning of his own name gave him plenty to consider. For Zechariah literally means God remembers. God remembers. And what is it that God remembers? Many things. But his promises for sure. 
His promises of rescue and salvation. His promises to fix the mess that we have made of his creation. His promises to save. And for Luke, this is what is happening now. God is acting on behalf of his promises. Through Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of their son, John. It is the bigger story at play right before our eyes. See, before there was Zechariah and Elizabeth, barren with no children, as the text tells us, with no promise. There was Elkanah and Hannah, barren as well, who would have a baby by the name of Samuel, who would be the last judge for Israel, but also go on to anoint King David and continue that promise. But before them, there was Abraham and Sarah, barren as well, who would have a son with the promised uh, from his line that I will make a great nation and all the family, I'll make a, a great nation of you and all the families of the earth will be blessed for you. That is Genesis 12, speaking way in advance of this very moment that we're about to embark on here in the coming weeks. And now he's doing it again, though, and he's doing it through Elizabeth, except, except this time it seems to be the final blessing, the final fulfillment to God's promises to redeem and to rescue That is what Zechariah had time to remember and to reflect on over those nine months. And the same is true for us now. Therefore, what the Advent season should remind us of is that the God of the Bible is a promise-keeping God. A God who remembers. And he acts and he is acting on behalf of his promises. But what we see in scripture over and over again is not that God fails to remember his promises, but that we are the ones who fail to remember his. And I love the season of Advent because everything does slow down to some degree. We can certainly make it a more hectic and busy season if we want to. But we have these four weeks to really stop and listen and reflect For the preparation of what is to come here later in the month. But we, but God is not the one who fails to remember. We are the ones who fail to remember his promises. We are the ones who forget what marvelous things he has done. We are the ones, if you will, in the boat as the seas rage and the winds howl. And as things threaten our comforts and plans and livelihood, we grow afraid. And then we ask, Lord, do you not love me? Do you not see that we are perishing? Yet all along he's right there with us in the boat. And if he is with us there, if he is with us now, what more do we need? Advent is the season of God coming to be with us, is it not? God does not forget his promises. We forget his. Forgetting can be a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. It can be a nice thing to forget what it was like to go to the dentist and to go and not have that anxiety, right? It can be a nice thing to forget the way that people have wronged you, perhaps, and to not carry that burden. But the God of the Bible calls us to be a remembering people. Zechariah. God remembers. To remember that God has and is acting on behalf of his promises. To remember the bigger story that we are a part of. That his promises do not start in chapter 1 of Luke, but in Genesis. And it would only be a kindness to us to bring some type of of affliction or silencing, much like Zechariah's, that would help us remember that God acts on behalf of his promises. This is the first point that builds Luke's audience of audiences wonder and excitement, and it should build ours as well. 
God not only acts on behalf of his promises, he also acts on behalf of his people. And this is the second point. The next name that we need to look at is Elizabeth, which literally means oath of God or God is faithful. God not only binds himself to his promises and bids us to remember them, he commits himself to us, right? He commits himself to us, his people as well. And we see this in his commitment to us here in this text, plainly that God acts because he is in fact committed to us. Much like Sarah and Hannah, I imagine that Elizabeth at some point came to terms with what God was and wasn't going to do for her in this life as far as having children is concerned. And I know many of us know this story personally, so I aim to be sensitive here. But it is important that we see that for Elizabeth, God wasn't finally being faithful to her by giving her a child. God had already been faithful to her because that's who he is. He is committed to Elizabeth and what he does. And especially for her in this text right now, he does for all people like Elizabeth. Mary, right, will not be the sole beneficiary of a of an unplanned or, or surprise pregnancy, if you will. You will be, too. For, the t- for that child who will be wrapped in swallowing clothes, as we'll read of in the coming weeks, will later wrap you and will wrap me and all of our hurts and pains and afflictions with his precious blood. This is the gift of all gifts. This is the faithfulness to Elizabeth, to Hannah, and to Sarah, and to us. Why? Because God is committed to you. And he is committed to you. Uh, and he acts because, because he acts on behalf of his people. But this gets to another theme as well of his faithfulness to us. That is without qualification from Luke. And I love that scattered throughout his entire gospel, which we'll have time to look at more in the spring. That for God to be committed to us requires that we requires that we that he might let me back up requires what we might call supernatural events to take place. In other words, salvation must come from him. There is no denying that Advent, the Christmas story at large, is a hard one to swallow for many because it requires a lot of faith in the supernatural. We are a faith that believes in stories like Sarah, like Hannah, Elizabeth, but also weirder ones like Mary. We are a faith that believes and hangs its belief on the fact that resurrection is true. In a day and an age of CGI and special effects, what are we to make of all this supernatural activity? And can I believe in Christianity, some of you might be asking, without all these miraculous tales of birth and resurrection? And the answer is no, you cannot. But to put our modern sensibilities at ease for a moment, let me take this opportunity to remind us that there is no gospel. There is no good news. There is no salvation, if you will, without the supernatural. And why? Because salvation cannot come from us. And Elizabeth's picture, or Elizabeth pictures this for us perfectly. Dare I say in her barrenness. We are a spiritually barren people, if you will. 
And God must break into the broken and make what is impossible possible for all of us. To make life where there is no life. In short, He is the one who must act, friends. Philip Ryken says it this way, salvation is not a human invention, which we oftentimes think that it is. Rather, it is a divine visitation. <clears throat> In other words, God comes to us as an expression of his faithfulness to us. And this, by definition, is a supernatural act. It has to be. There is no salvation. There is no gospel without it. God is not just in the business, figuratively speaking, of creating life where there is none. He is literally in the business of creating life where there is none. Would we be able to make room for that this Advent season? Making room for the supernatural activity that this Christmas would have for us as we await a virgin who will be with child. At the same time, there is freedom to question and to wrestle with what appears to be supernatural activity on a fairy tale level in this text. But could I just offer one point to consider for you that might be wrestling with the challenges of believing in such miracles in this story? Why does Luke, who uh, by far more than any other gospel account, who records the history of these events in such a way, why does he not have a problem writing these things down? Right next to the objective facts that he has spent so much time lining up and making sure worked. See, Luke, as we'll see, is by far the most researched gospel. He went to great lengths to compile accounts for a man named Theophilus so that he would, quote, have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty. That's a strong word. Why are these miracles not a problem for Luke? Is it because people in this day were of more simple mind? Hardly. What's worse for Luke, though, is that he compiled this gospel some 35, 40 years after these events had taken place. And why that's bad is because if you're going to put out something like this just 35 or 40 years later, you're going to have people who are still alive who could verify these facts. So whether it's true or not, consider what happened if someone had visited our church and claimed that they were a TCU grad from back in the 70s. And as they began to kind of get to know know you in this church and began to make their presence known, they began to speak of their experience there as a student and how there was this great um, revival where all kinds of students came to know Christ. And in fact, there was this select few who began to have these healing powers and they began to heal people on this campus. They began to do all kinds of amazing things just a couple miles from here. In fact, it became such a big deal that half the state of Texas began to show up because they would be able to miraculously heal people of any of their ailments and ills and things of that, that nature. But then, before I graduated, the government brought in the National Guard and took these people away and it's gone. And, well, that was just a sad, sad day. If they came in trying to convince you of certain truths that happened in order to convince you of a greater truth just 35 years ago, The problem is that we have people in this very room who are on that campus in that day, who went to that school, who could tell you whether that happened or not really, really quickly. That's the problem for Luke. So why does he not have any problem putting these things next to objective facts, if you will, on accounts that took place 35, 40 years after they had happened? 
Could it be that he doesn't have a problem with it because they actually happened? Because they're actually true. Could we make room for that this Christmas? Something for all of us to consider as we enter into God acting in a way that is beyond us. Friends, God acts on behalf of his people because he is committed to us. And because salvation must come from him. It cannot come from you. The real miracle in all this, as Elizabeth's own name attests to, is that though we doubt his faithfulness to us, God still acts on behalf of the unfaithful. On behalf of his people, you and me, this very moment. For some of us, that's harder to get our arms around than a virgin birth. Is there room for that under this Christmas tree, so to speak, this year for you? Our last point, we've seen so far that God acts on behalf of his promises and he acts on behalf of his people. But he also acts on behalf of his plan or his purposes, whichever you prefer. As we said at the beginning, the whole first chapter of Luke screams, God is up to something. He is moving again. He is at work. Something has started. And in many ways, the season of Advent is about preparing us for how God is about to act. But the narrative ends with this question, what is God doing? For all who heard this message, this story of Elizabeth, Zechariah, and the birth of John, the question upon their hearts was this, what then will this child be? Or what will become of this child? In other words, what is God up to? What is he doing? Perhaps the most interesting exchange in the text is the naming of Zechariah's and Elizabeth's baby. In fact, it is the naming of this child that drives the rest of this narrative. Like good Jews, babies were given the sign of the covenant at eight years old, or eight days old, excuse me, eight days old. It was usually then that the child was named as well. As those who had gathered, as you see there in the text, they expected that the baby would be named after Zechariah, perhaps, or a relative. What's clear, though, is that no one in their family, apparently, is named John. Because they have a big fit over this. Which is the name Elizabeth gives the baby? Then they all looked and they inquired to Zechariah as to what the name will be. And Zechariah's words are literally John. That's it. That is his name. And the, and the name John, what it means, gives us the reason for all this. For John means gracious giver. Or God is merciful. And it is no surprise that once God's graciousness is revealed, which is the power of God for sinners, that everything changes. Immediately, Zechariah's inability to speak is lifted. It doesn't happen at John's birth. Notice that. It happens at his naming. God is doing something here. The silent period is over, and the silence gives way to words that are described by Luke as blessing God there in the text. All of this followed by fear, that recognition that God is here, that he is acting, that he is doing something before our eyes, and we're not sure if we should be here to experience it or not. That of remembering, of faithfulness, and now grace. All of this on display. And it is God's inviting character and kindness to us that He is coming to you. And this wonder and excitement grows and it runs into the streets and the villages and the hill country of Judea. It's finally happening, people. 
The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then finally, after these 400 years of silence, God is finally acting again on behalf of his promises, on behalf of his people, and on behalf of his plans. And for the moment, it seems that all is safe, yet at the same time, nothing is safe. What then will this child be, they exclaim. For the hand of the Lord was with him. We know that this child will be the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This, friends, is the plan. And it is unfolding before our very eyes in Luke's gospel. Now, is there anything about this plan up to this point? And of course, beyond our little text this morning, is there anything about it? about the way God is acting, that we would say, oh, this makes perfect sense. I saw this coming a mile away. There's no need for Luke to have to go through all this effort to record all this meticulous detail and keep this recorded for us. I knew this was going to happen. If you didn't know it was going to happen, you're not even paying attention. Is anybody saying this? No. And why? No one is saying this because no matter how many times we're told Right? We never see grace coming. We never do. Which is God's plan. We never see grace coming. Pharisees will abound because grace cannot be true. Skeptics refuse to open themselves up to the possibility that it could be true. Guilt and shame tells us we could never deserve it, ironically. And pride says we don't need it. But friends, God acts anyway. He acts anyway. On behalf of his promises, on behalf of his people, and on behalf of his plan. Now, as we leave this story, which in many ways is a story of three names, let me give us some questions to consider For the coming week, in the coming weeks leading up to Christmas. This Advent, friends, what is God, what is it that God might be calling you to remember, like Zechariah? What promises of God have sort of fallen out of your sight? Where, like Elizabeth, is God's faithfulness most evident to you? See, oftentimes our lives are ruled not by what God has done for us. And I say this sensitively, but what God has not done for us. Where is God's faithfulness to you most evident? And then who, like John, is the grace of God most tangible to you? Because that's where you'll find the gift of all gifts. And as we begin to roll through these names again and to ask these questions, it's as if we're taking the present that's waiting for us at Christmas and we're beginning to peel back that wrapping paper just a little bit to get a peek, right? And we see that the names of this story, Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John, remembering faithfulness, grace, these names prepare us and prepare the way for a fourth name, which is to come. And his name is Jesus. God saves God saves. This Advent, Luke is not recording these things just as historical fact. 
Luke is inviting you to something much bigger, friends. He is inviting you to a life of faith in this baby to come, Jesus, the one who will save, the promise of all promises, right? The ultimate expression of God's faithfulness to his people and the tangible plan that is grace himself. Friends, something has started, but it ain't here yet. But get ready. Let us for now... Lay these things up in our hearts, as the text says. This coming week, as we move closer to the arrival of this gift of all gifts. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the ways that you do condescend. The ways that you prepare us to show us that you are working and acting. That you are a God who doesn't forget your promises. And even as a people who forgets your promises, you remain faithful to us. Let us remember that. Let us remember your plan all along, which is grace to us. And let us prepare ourselves to receive that in the person of Jesus Christ this season. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.